This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. My name is Chad. I'm a Trinity Evangelical Divinity student, and I get to serve with men's uh, ministry here. Uh, Today we're going to be in Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. Again, that's Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hardback Bible in the pew in front of you. Go ahead and grab that, uh, take it out, and write your name on the front page if you don't have one. That is now yours to keep. Um, I want to start off today's sermon with a Trinitarian prayer that I was reading last week. Today we're talking about urgent instruction, but this prayer was just something that that I really just cherished this week and I wanted to share with you all. Um, It comes from a book called The Valley of the Vision. So if you all would bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, Blessed Son, Eternal Spirit, we adore you as one being, one essence, one God, and three distinct persons. For bringing sinners to your knowledge and your kingdom. O Father, you have loved us and you have sent Jesus to redeem us. O Jesus, you have loved us and assumed our nature shed your own blood to wash away our sins, given us your righteousness to cover our unworthiness. O Holy Spirit, you have loved us and entered into our hearts and planted there eternal life, revealed to us the glories of Jesus, three persons and one God. We bless you and praise you for love so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. Amen. So today's passage will be broken up into four sections. We are going to be talking about God's desire for our financial ethics, our work ethics, our character ethics, and we will conclude with the reason it all matters. So as we work through this passage, I want us to recall two things. That Proverbs is not merely a collection of good rules to live by. They are not merely ethics. Today we're talking about ethics sourced from God. They are spiritual truths expressed tangibly in our lifestyle. And secondly, we as believers recognize that we will fall short of his standards. Now we don't go on sinning, but we contextualize our shortcomings knowing that we are justified by Christ. So in short, we recognize we're in process. That being said, let's dig into Proverbs 6, verse 1. My son, if you've put up security for your neighbor... Have given your pledge for a stranger. If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. Go to the anto sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, and points with his fingers, with a perverted heart devises evil. 
continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken without healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Solomon starts off this message by addressing his son. It's an affectionate start to a critical passage. Solomon is a wise king and a good leader, so he knows how to package critical instruction. He begins by giving instruction about money. Now, I'm not a CPA, and I'm not licensed to give financial instruction, but money causes all sorts of problems for us today. It causes conflict in marriages. It can constrain you to a job that you don't enjoy. And overall, money can just feel like this extra burden of stress you have to carry around. Capital One did a study last month. In that study, they found that 77% of Americans report feeling anxious about their financial situation. That means not even one out of every four of us in this room go about our weeks without some sort of financial stress. Now, Solomon didn't need that statistic, but he knew the risks. So he says, my son, if you put up security for a neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you're snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and urgently plead with your neighbor. So he warns us about putting up security for a neighbor, a pledge for a stranger. What's security or what's a pledge? That's not common language for us today. We don't go to a bank, apply for loans, and put up a pledge. We put up collateral or we co-sign, but the meaning here is slightly different. According to the context of the day, putting up up a pledge or security is akin to putting a deed to your house on the line. It's exposure of unlimited liability. It's to say, if this person doesn't pay back what he borrowed, then you can take whatever is mine to pay it back. Solomon is suggesting that that practice would be unwise. It's putting oneself into the hand of their neighbor, as he puts it. Now that person's financial security lies in the hands of someone else. But he says, if you've already found yourself in this kind of promise, then go. Hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. Solomon's concern is so urgent, he compares it to a gazelle being hunted. He says, run, fix this now, don't wait. This promise that you've made to put everything you own on the line for someone else, it'll be your ruin. I don't want to make this sound like anything more than it is. The message here is simple. Solomon is straightforward. If someone has made a financial promise they should not keep, then they should go to the person they made this promise for and ask, and ask that person to free them from this commitment. Don't wait. Don't put it off. The longer you wait, the harder it will be to free yourself from this promise. Solomon isn't encouraging anyone to go back on their word, but he is saying 
the moral risk that you've taken on is superior to the moral risk of asking this person to free you from your commitment. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know that lending or taking on someone else's debt is at, at times permitted. And you might be asking yourself, what makes this type of lending different than the other one? For example, uh, Philemon verse 18. It's a small book, only one chapter, and it's about a slave's conversion to Christ. Upon this slave's conversion, Paul makes the following offer to the slave, slave owner. Philemon verse 18. If he, the slave, has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. In this short verse, Paul expresses a willingness to take on whatever debt this slave owes. Now, that sounds quite different than what we read in Proverbs 6. Here's how one commentator by the name of Duane Garrett explains this contrast between Proverbs 6 and Philemon 18. The Bible does not absolutely forbid taking on uh, legal responsibilities of another person, such as in Philemon 18. It does, however, here state that risking home and liberty in an enterprise over which one does not have direct control is consummate folly. Surety of assets and home and even selling of the debtor into slavery were common penalties for failure to make payment, and the pledge maker could well have met the same fate. In short, the utility of this section could be summed up as the freedom of burden rather than the all-out prohibition. In fact, the first five verses could be summed up like this. Don't burden yourself with unlimited financial liability. But if you do, plead to free yourself from it. Steward God's money well. Again, don't burden yourself with unlimited financial liability. But if you do, plead to free yourself from it. Steward God's money well. Let's move on to verse 6 through 11. Go to the Anto sluggard. Consider her ways. Be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So this time, Solomon is referencing a sluggard. Last time he was referencing a gazelle, now he's switching the imagery to a sluggard. Now it's a sluggard. It's a, it's a slow, unmo- unmotivated, stagnant creature. Solomon might be writing these proverbs as his son is still quite young, so it's not assumed that he's referencing any sort of event in this passage. He might just be storing up wisdom for his child to read later on. We don't know. But in verses 6 through 11, he's addressing the, the possibility that his son would be tempted to behave like a slug. That he would sit around at home, uninterested in his well-being, thinking that more rest would give him the energy he needs. Do you know how much time people spent on the internet last year? I actually had to look up the metric of measurement because I wasn't familiar with it. According to a company by the name of Statistica, in 2021, the total internet traffic amounted to 74 zettabytes. Again, that's 74 zettabytes. 
So to give you an idea of what that is, one zettabyte is one billion terabytes. One terabyte is 1,000 gigabytes. One gigabyte is 1,000 megabytes. And one high-quality picture is about 20 megabytes. That's a lot of time on the internet. But let me just give you the statistics for Netflix alone. According to the same company, every minute, a combined 452,000 hours of Netflix is watched. That means every day, roughly 651 million hours of Netflix is played. We as a society are more sluggish than Solomon could have ever dreamed of. <laughs> but thank God, that's not where he leaves us. Solomon, being the good leader he is, doesn't call his son a slug and expect some miraculous change. He gives his son an example and a challenge. He says, consider the ant, this diligent worker who has no need for a master. He builds, he stores, and he harvests without anyone looking over his shoulder. He has no, no need for someone to task him with a job. He sees the work that needs to be done, and he does it. Soon enough, roads are built, the queen is fed, and the whole colony is raised. Solomon's instruction to his son is an encouragement of work ethic. But as I'm talking, I want us to consider our work ethic in our relationship with God. There's a 19th century preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. He's quoted as saying the following. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls the Father. So if God is really this great and endless, how should that inspire a work ethic, ethic towards him? If God is the greatest good that has ever existed, and if all good comes from him, what does that mean for us who are only able to comprehend a fraction of his beauty? Should it not inspire something within? C.S. Lewis said it this way. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Solomon, Spurgeon, Lewis, they're all saying the same thing. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? How long will you satisfy yourself with mud pies? There's a holiday at sea. There's paradise at stake. When a non-believer asks you about your day, is it worth bringing up your relationship with God? When you see your neighbor mowing his lawn on a hot day, how will you show him Christian hospitality? Before I came a, became a Christian, an old friend had to ask me about a dozen times to join his life group. I hadn't even talked to him in years, but this, this individual felt like it, 
that the gospel was more, more important to him than anything else. And for that reason, he could not let it rest. Putting off the gospel, telling ourselves that we will always have tomorrow, it's not the way of the ant. See God, treasure him, and like the ant, do something about it. That's the Christian work, work ethic. Now, verses 12 through 15. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, with a perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, you will be broken beyond all healing. Beyond healing. So, we address the urgency of financial ethics, the urgency of work ethics, and now hopefully we're seeing the urgency of our character ethics. Notice how this person's brokenness comes upon him suddenly. It only takes a moment. God cares about goodness. He does not let wickedness abound freely. Some call it fate, others call it karma, but we as Christians understand that sin and destruction are unbreakably tied. Even at the cross, Jesus' body was broken for our sin. There's no way around it. But Solomon's not referencing the believer here. Notice how Solomon shifts from the second person to now the third person in verse 12. He shifts from saying, how long will you, when will you, to now that person, that man. Solomon wants his son to consider his company. Although Solomon could have said to his son, you should not be worthless, you should not be wicked, he's speaking about someone outside his immediate correspondence. I think he's saying, consider the character of those that you're spending time with. Don't surround yourself with wicked people. When you see people in the market, among your friends at work who lace their language with gossip, who act with alternative motives, who stir dissension, evangelize, but also stay clear. Now, can there be redemption for gospers, schemers, or wicked people who sow discord? With repentance, we can be as sure of our justification as Christ is righteous. But those who continue in this kind of gossip and discord, it's hard to stop. It becomes more and more serious as time goes on. We don't have time to get into the literary device that Solomon uses to heighten the severity of this behavior, but just know that Solomon has carefully crafted this section in a way that expresses unparalleled seriousness compared to the, the two sections before this. But to keep it short, simply don't participate in gossip. Don't join in those who scheme. Don't surround yourself with divisive people. Evangelize, but also stay clear. That's his ethic of character. So verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, 
a heart that devises evil, wicked plans, feet, uh, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So is it six or seven things that God hates? Uh, Simply put, this is Solomon's way of saying uh, it's not an exhaustive list. The number of things that God hates is not limited to the list provided here. So why does he say it this way? Uh, Writing in his day was an art form. Uh, We shouldn't go overboard with numerology. Um, More often than not, it gets us into trouble. But this is one example of a common interpretation of Hebrew numerology. So just a disclaimer to start us off. This list is a specific list of things that God hates, but not an exhaustive list. This list is true, but the list of sin that God hates goes well beyond six or seven. Now, I want us to be careful here because 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What I don't want to do here is rush to say that God loves the that God loves the sinner and hates the sin, and in the process, cheapen God's grace and cheapen God's word. Our sin was paid with a heavy price. The holy God who dwelt in paradise, who did nothing wrong, who had no need to save us, became flesh, experienced the pains of growth, was truly human, dealt with family conflict, was betrayed by his closest friends, took on the entirety of the wrath of God for our sins. The flogging, the nails driven into his hands, the suffocation on the cross is nothing compared to the Father's wrath against the Son. And it was done on our behalf. Sin is no small thing. Like I said earlier, sin and destruction are inextricably bound. So Solomon gives this list of only a few sins that God hates, and I started off by saying that I would end this sermon with the reason why it all matters. The reason our financial ethics matter, the reason our work ethics matter, the reason our character ethics matter is because we want to live in light of eternity. Last time I was up here, uh, we were in Psalm 121. I shared about the hill of the idols and the hill of the Lord. We can walk in one of two directions. We can pursue God or we can pursue ourselves. Throughout Proverbs 6, Solomon is making it painfully clear. Run like the gazelle, go to the ant. There's a right way to live and there's also a wrong way to live. One way will relieve your burdens and the other will bring about destruction. So here's my plea. Live in light of eternity. There's a day coming when we're all going to give an account. If you're here today, uh, as guilty as I am, uh, guilty of all sorts of sin, consider Peter. He was one of, three, one of Jesus' three closest disciples. 
And before Jesus' trial, Peter denied knowing him. And at that, he denied knowing him three times. Or consider Paul. He presided over the death of Stephen and tried to stomp out the early church. But then consider God's free gift of salvation through faith. Look at all the ways that God used Paul and used Peter to make himself known. Paul later says in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, the, trust, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to, to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are here, uh, who, who were to believe in him for eternal life. So on that, on that note, let's conclude in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word and your instruction. We thank you that you have not left us to wander aimlessly the life that you have desired us to have, but you have made what is good and what is true clearly available to us. Today, we thank you for your work at the cross to save us from sin. We pray that you would cause us to live out this new reality in our spheres of influence. Cause us to manage our short time here on earth not with foolishness, but a treasure of eternity with you. Lord, you are good, you are right, and you are wonderful in all your ways. In your name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.